first thing I think of when someone says humani vitae is a courageous defense of love and life. The first thing that comes to my mind is prophetic. God's gift. Celebrate life. I would say when I hear humani vitae, I think a great opportunity and what a tragedy. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. And today's episode, actually the next four episodes or so, are on sensitive topics, probably not for kiddos' ears. Today we're talking about the encyclical Humani Vitae, because July 25th, 2018, is its 50th anniversary. This encyclical reaffirmed the Catholic Church's stance on openness to children as an essential quality of the sexual act. Now, in 1960, the very first oral contraceptive pill was approved by the FDA. Some people thought that hormonal contraception like this was so different from other contraceptive methods that the Church might say it was okay. After all, it didn't introduce any sort of barrier between husband and wife, and it created a quote-unquote safe period, seemingly not unlike the natural one that already exists, where the woman is not ovulating and cannot get pregnant. Women started going on the pill right away, and there were priests telling people, oh yes, don't worry, the church is going to change the teaching. We're going to talk about why that's not what happened. Before we get too far into this, let's get a little primer about the title Humanae Vitae. Having the titles of church documents come from the incipit, the first sentence or line or usually one or two words, is not a practice that's unique to the church. It's a practice that is a way that books have been known in antiquity, especially when you have a scroll that's in a little cubby hole in a shelf. Um, You might have a little tag with the first line, or you might not. And you might just unroll a scroll a little bit and see the first line. So that's the easiest way to identify a text. This is my friend Lionel. My name's Lionel Yosesko. Janet and I have been married for 13 years. We have five kids, and I studied at the University of Dallas and the Catholic University of America, where I earned my Ph.D. in Greek and Latin. I asked Lionel to shed some light on Humanae Vitae in terms of its translation in English. As you may know, there's always a kind of official English translation of a document on the Vatican website, but the Latin version is considered the standard or authoritative version. I think it's great to to have a variety of translations, especially in a situation when you're relying on translation. Because a translation is an act of interpretation. There is no such thing as a pure best, correct translation. The literal translation is almost never the best. It's often misleading, and sometimes it's flat wrong. If I were to say, I'm sorry, in Spanish, and then translate it literally back into English, I would be saying something else. I feel it. It means something in English, and it doesn't mean I'm sorry. So a translation always loses a bit of the original meaning. Often, we don't worry too much about this, but sometimes, as in the case of Humanae Vitae, we really want to make sure we get the meaning of particular points. For example, take the longer title of the document in English. 
It ends with the phrase, on the regulation of birth. This phrase, the regulation of birth, it's propagatione humane prolis recte ordinanda, which is literally on the right ordering of the propagation of human offspring. And the official translation has on the regulation of birth. So the very essence of what those nouns, the realities that those nouns represent is different, right? Take regulation, for example. In English, it's an abstract noun. This is a a verb in the Latin, right? So the Latin phrase says how to order. The verb is ordinanda. And then you've got birth coming from the Latin phrase propagatione humane prolis, which is, as I translated literally, the propagation of human offspring, human progeny. The word birth in English, I think, primarily refers to the act of delivering a child. And uh, when you use the phrase regulation of birth, when you pair the, the, the two images like that, you sort of reinforce that, that first impression. Right? We're talking about the actual delivery of children. And also, the Latin word munus appears twice in the opening paragraph and is translated in two different ways. You're really not going to know that something unusual or something confusing is going on unless you're looking at the Latin and the English side by side. And that's with how the word munus is treated throughout the whole document. And in the first paragraph alone, the word munus is translated with two different words. The first time it's translated with the word role, and the second time it's translated with the word duty. And those are both two perfectly valid translations of that word. And that's what you have to do as a translator. You can't translate the same word the same way every time. This is a word that's really hard. Later on, the translator has a choice between problems or questions for the same Latin word. Those have very different connotations in English. The fulfillment of this duty has always posed problems to the conscience of married people. That's a striking phrase right there. Come back to that in a minute. Going on. But the recent course of human society and the concomitant changes have provoked new questions. And it's kind of neat. If you're looking at the Latin, the word problems and the word questions are both in Latin questiones. So you could have said the fulfillment of this duty has posed questions to the conscience of married people. I think it contributes to this tone of the beginning part of the document. I don't know, maybe he's being diplomatic here. This is just, uh, you know, my speculation. But, you know, in the first few paragraphs, he prepares his reader to expect any possible reply, any possible outcome. And uh, you don't really know which way it's going to go if you just, you know, stepped off of a spaceship and somebody handed you this document. I don't want to belabor this point, but there's just one more word that comes into play pretty often in discussions of humane vitae. The adjective gravis in its various forms, it always means that we're talking about something that's really hard to bear, whether we want to say serious or heavy or grave. And I'm not just talking about generally in the language, but in the document Humane Vitae, starting from the beginning and going to the end. A couple of the times where he uses the adjective, he's talking about grave difficulties that are uh, sometimes too much for an individual person 
to bear. The transmission of life, Pope Paul VI wrote, is a munus gravissimum. I don't know if I'm saying that right. In other words, something that even though it might be really hard or too hard, it's still something that we're going to try to do. Lionel and his wife Janet, who also teaches Latin, don't just know how to read Humanae Vitae. They live it. Do I think it's too hard to live without a smartphone? (laughs) Uh, Most of the people who have ever lived did. Things like contraception and abortion have always been around and always will be. And uh, teachings like this also were not invented within the last couple of generations either. We're talking about something that's a little bit harder than what people around us are doing. We're not talking about something that is absolutely too hard to do. I'm going to have a whole episode, or two, on NFP, so let's keep moving. At the opening of this episode, you heard the reactions of people to the phrase humanae vitae. Here's Bishop Ricken from the Diocese of Green Bay. I would say when I hear humanae vitae, I think a great opportunity and what a tragedy that, you know, humanity did not accept that very important teaching. And that's the very teaching that will liberate us from many, many of these problems that we have today. So it's a lost opportunity, but maybe now that we're at the 50th anniversary, it's a chance for the church to re-embrace the truth of the teaching of Paul VI and the continued tradition of the church throughout many, many centuries to make this our own now, to represent it to couples. How is it an opportunity? Well, if you actually read the document, and it's not that long, the vision of marriage put forward is quite beautiful. It could have sparked interesting conversations about love and life, sex and marriage, respect of spouses for one another, dialogue, shared responsibility, etc. You know, this has been a struggle uh, communicating the truth of Humanae Vitae for, for decades now. Uh, after it came back, I remember I was newly ordained priest in 1980 in Pueblo, Colorado, the diocese where I served for 16 years. And, it was, you know, it wasn't just there. It was all over the country. You would get such huge pushback from people when you would talk about contraception, humanae vitae, and the whole continuous flow of life and the connection of life from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death. So instead of taking up the opportunity to discuss how or why the human being is created in such a way that contraception is bad for us, people rejected it out of hand because, frankly, it is a hard teaching. I sense in young people, not that they're averse to it, they don't even know anything about it at all. They don't understand the, the church's and even nature's gift of marriage and what it's all about for the sake of procreation and for the sake of the communion of the couple, one one in love with the other, in Christ, especially when it's a sacrament. So many of these diamonds of treasury that come from the Bible and the church's teaching, people just don't know about. And it's really sad, but all of these, you know, ills, modern day ills that we're having in, in marriage breakdowns and divorces and domestic violence and redefinition of marriage, all of this was predicted by Paul VI. This anniversary is a great time to pick up Humanae Vitae again, or to read it for the first time. You know, there are always opportunities to represent the gospel, to have confidence in the healing power of Jesus Christ, to know that the Father is merciful and loving and forgiving. Uh, But we have to first admit that we are sinners and that we've wandered away sometimes, and we want to come back, we want to understand why does the church teach what she teaches. 
he says, yeah, sometimes it's sometimes you're going to fail and uh, go to confession. <laughs> Sister Helena Burns of the Daughters of St. Paul chose the phrase celebrate life and talks about the deeper difference between contraception and fertility awareness. There's no real way to say that contracepting celebrates or honors the gift of life, but being aware of your fertility and taking it into consideration can still be a celebration or an honoring of life. He says the difference between natural family planning and contraception are two completely different views of the human person. He calls them irreconcilable views of the human person and human sexuality. That's huge, right? There's not just a slight difference between the two. There's a huge difference between the two. St. John Paul II dedicated himself to explaining the dramatic difference in the way that these two methods of having a family treat the human person. It's called his theology of the body. Theology of the body is cosmic. <laughs> it's, it's a Bible study. It is a vision, a complete and total deep human vision of the whole human person, not just for here, but for hereafter. And as John Paul II called it himself, he said, this is an adequate anthropology because we've been working off inadequate anthropologies. For whatever reason, people seem to see Humanae Vitae as Pope Paul VI's opinion, as if the teaching against contraception is a new thing. He just came up with it. What people forget is that the church for 2,000 years had a pro-life stance on contraception and abortion. And those two are always linked because some contraceptives are also abortifacients, as we know. A human life begins and then it's prevented from implanting. And Christianity has always rejected both of them until the 1930s when the Anglican Church was the first church to accept contraception, modern, more modern forms of contraception. And then little by little, many of the churches accepted it, except the Catholics. Like the Catholic Church will never, ever accept contraception or abortion because it is so destructive of the human person, the human psyche, the body, life and love. It is interesting to consider this universal Christian teaching and what happened in 1930 to change it. If you read the resolutions of the Lambeth Conference in 1930, in which the Anglican Church became the first Christian church to see contraception as a moral option, you'll find that they allowed contraception just barely and almost begrudgingly. Here, I'll read it to you. It's resolution number 15. Where there is a clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, the method must be decided on Christian principles. The primary and obvious method is complete abstinence from intercourse, as far as may be necessary, in a life of discipline and self-control lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, in those cases where there is such a clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, and where there is a morally sound reason for avoiding complete abstinence, the conference agrees that other methods may be used, provided that this is done in the light of the same Christian principles. The conference records its strong condemnation of the use of any methods of conception control from motives of selfishness, luxury, or mere convenience. So, yes, the Anglicans allowed contraception, but only as a kind of exception to the norm, and they didn't share their reasoning behind it. It's not really clear that there was more reflection than that sometimes it's really hard to respect that sex leads to children. I mean, life is hard, marriage is hard, every vocation is hard, there's issues and problems and, and whatnot. 
The best things in life require a little elbow grease. We know this. The best things in life require the most work, but they have the biggest payoffs, too. As Lionel put it earlier, living Christian marriage without using contraception is difficult, but in degree, perhaps, not in kind. Every marriage will go through hard times. It's not like contraception is going to suddenly make marriage easy. And if this teaching is really God's law, not human law, then paradoxically, even the fact that it's hard works for the good of the spouses. You know, when we practice virtue, virtue is its own reward, right? We begin to say, oh, we start to see the wisdom of it in a way that we can't by just standing back and trying to analyze it and grasp it with our minds without actually doing it. So what the Bible is saying, what God is saying, what the church is saying is not a bunch of rules or regulations from the outside that are kind of unnatural and arbitrary being imposed on us. It's an inner requirement. What is the inner requirement of my very nature? What is the inner requirement of my very high dignity as a human person? So is it worth the hard parts to live up to the high dignity of the human person? Pope Paul VI and St. John Paul II clearly thought so. One of our problems today is that we seem to allow our feelings to dictate to us. What if you based other important things in your life on your feelings, like going to school? What if uh, a parent, you know, their little baby is sick for five nights in a row, they're not getting any sleep, the baby's screaming all night. What if they based taking care of that baby on feelings? They wouldn't take care of the kid. But because it's an act of the will, there's, you know, three parts to us, mind, will, and heart. Heart is the feelings, will is the actions, mind is the thoughts, and the reasoning. Love is, is a choice of the will. This makes intuitive sense, I think. Human beings have the capacity to reason about what is good and to act accordingly. And sometimes, when looked at with a clear head, the choice is obvious. So I always think of some of the names of the contraceptive methods. Barrier method, spermicide, withdrawal. That's not just physical. That's happening spiritually, too. And over time, it can erode the relationship. And what I always say, as a former radical feminist, I still have my feminist radar with which I examine all things. And as hard as natural family planning may be to do, the alternative is worse. It may feel easier at first, but the alternative to just contracept is much, much worse. Even in this world in which we find ourselves, which is consumer-driven and and distractions and temptations, and, and people can still look back and see the, some of the wisdom that comes from the way God designed the relationship of husband and wife in the sac- sacrament of marriage that is creative and caring for and nurturing the gift of life. This is Bishop Rassus. Well, I'm Bishop George Rassus from Chicago, Auxiliary Bishop there. I cover vicariate number one. I was ordained May 2nd in 1968. And if you remember the year 1968, it was a pretty critical year in the history of our country. In fact, a few years ago, Time Magazine put out an issue on the year 1968. As some of us who lived through those days remember, it was uh, the Vietnam War. It was time civil rights was, uh, was still bubbling up all over the place. In the spring of that year, I think the Friday before Palm Sunday, that uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. In June, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, uh, but the McDonald's invented the, the Big Mac. Bishop Rassus was ordained a priest right before Humanae Vitae came out. In those days, I mean, as a young priest, it was I was trying to, you know, 
be grounded myself in, in the issues that were going on in, in the society around us. But in the middle of it all, of course, was the teaching. And I think by and large, people were uh, the availability of contraception and birth control and all that were sometimes tempted to perhaps take the easier way out, you know, to remove in some ways the obligation, responsibility, and respect for the gift of each of them as husband and wife and uh, the gift of their own sexuality choosing means that uh, were contrary to the church's teaching. But on the other hand, certainly, natural family planning, I, I was thinking in those days, did not have the scientific knowledge and amount of knowledge that we've gained over these years, in the last 50 years, you know. We're going to go into that later. NFP has come a long way in 50 years. We also now have 50 years of evidence that the sexual revolution wasn't all as cracked up to be. And he warned about some of the things that possibly could happen when people turn to forms of contraception, if you will, or birth control and so forth. And a lot of what he said is, has come true in our society because we've lost a respect for the distinction between a man and a woman, a male and female. And we've denigrated in many ways and tried to re- redefine what marriage is in our world today, which can be anything you want it to be. And a respect for our own individual sexuality and the relationships that we have. Pope Paul VI really was a prophet. Toward the end of the document, in section 17, he makes a number of predictions that he says if society were to adopt on a widespread scale the use of contraception, a number of things would follow. He says there'd be a general lowering of moral standards, especially on the part of young people who are especially vulnerable. There would be a loss of respect on the part of men for women. And there would be the danger of government coercion to forced contraception, sterilization, or abortion programs. Every one of those predictions, or we could say prophecies, that Pope Paul VI made had been fulfilled and then some. You can look at the data, and it's overwhelming, but you can also just look at the culture. Look at the culture around us. We have a pornography epidemic. We have problems of human trafficking. We have the hashtag MeToo movement, indicative of this, what Pope Paul VI called the loss of respect on the part of men for women. We are immersed in this. We we can point to the coercive one-child policy of the Chinese government, which may be becoming a two-child policy. But we can look here in the United States and see judges from the bench mandating contraception and sterilization on certain people. So every one of his predictions has been fulfilled and then some. This is John Grabowski. John Grabowski. I'm an associate professor of moral theology and ethics at Catholic University. He points out that, well, it's even worse than Pope Paul VI expected. What was for millennia, one thing in people's minds. You got married, you engaged in sexual intercourse, and then you had children. It's one thing. It's marriage and family. It's one entity. Now we have three separate dissociable parts. Three things. First, have sex without marriage, which, let's be real, is way less tempting when you know you could get pregnant. Marriage without children, or children without sex or marriage. 
assisted reproductive technologies make it possible for asexual reproduction. And you can even genetically pre-select certain qualities you want. So you can have a designer baby, not just any baby. And we've fallen farther from reality in terms of understanding ourselves as human beings. One thing that Pope Paul VI didn't foresee, probably couldn't foresee, is the way in which taking fertility out of our understanding of marriage has destabilized our whole concept of ourselves. I think this is how we get to 70 plus genders on Facebook, right? Not talking about people who actually have physical ambiguity in the manifestation of their sexual difference, intersex people, or people who experience gender dysphoria, the disconnect between their sense of self and their bodies. That's that's very different, right? I'm talking about people who say, well, how do I feel about my body? What am I attracted to today, anyway? That's going to be my gender. So we become self-creating subjects who make ourselves and don't really feel beholden to being male or female or even human because we're just self-creating entities. Dr. Grabowski is talking here about transhumanism. That is a whole other episode, y'all. I also think that we can point to 50 more years of scientific and social scientific research that vindicates the teaching itself, but then the, again, the kind of prophetic warnings about, well, if we go in this direction, this is what's going to happen. Well, again, Pope Paul VI really did nail it in terms of his articulation of what would happen and what has happened to us as a culture. If this revolution is so good for people, we'll point out the fruits and you don't really see any fruits. The only thing that I could say that is even remotely uh, positive is that sex is something natural and wholesome. Well, yeah, of course. This is Teresa Notare, who runs the Natural Family Planning Office at the USCCB. But you look at the um, outcomes of unbridled sexual desire and you see broken hearts, you see a rise of sexually transmitted diseases, more and more people choosing not to marry, cohabiting, going from one long-term cohabiting relationship to another. You see even on a wide uh, scale, a social scale, great drops in population rates so that people are not even choosing to have children. Um, There are catastrophic uh, results, negative outcomes that the modern sexual revolution, which has been facilitated by contraception, and that doesn't look like it's good for people. Teresa suggests looking at what's right in front of our faces. Are people happier now in their romantic relationships than they were 50 years ago? Of course, it's an impossible question to answer empirically, but it's worth speculating on. People are not happier. They don't have what they really want, and I truly believe people want loving relationships. And and what is love? Love means that you're not going to run away from a person just because the going gets tough. I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue this point. What with the Me Too movement and other things that, in many ways, contraception made possible. The possibility of getting pregnant on the one side or impregnating someone on the other was quite a deterrent to premarital sex. This changed very quickly. You could not get a date unless you're willing 
to have sex with whoever took you out that night. There is no way they would ever ask you out unless it was understood that at the end of the night, sex would be involved. This is Deborah Savage. Here's a story from her college days in the early 1970s. Okay, so I met this young man at a coffee shop on the Stanford campus. And he was really cute and really, really smart. He wanted to be a lawyer. And, you know, I wasn't bad-looking myself, I must say. So we kind of connected. He saw me from across the room. I was with my friends. So we all sat together at this table. I think he had a friend with him, and they were flirting with us, and we were flirting with them. And everything seemed fine. And then he asked me if I didn't want to go for a walk. And so I said, sure, yeah. So that's how the relationship began, and he decided he would like to go out. I don't recall the exact circumstances of the next time we met, like, and we picked me up and we went somewhere, but where we ended up was in a friend's dorm room. And I naively thought, this will be fine, you know. So we're in this dorm room, and of course he's assuming that my willingness to go into the dorm room meant that I was also willing then to sleep with him. I thought we went there to, I don't know, get some coffee or chat or but that wasn't it. What he had in mind was I was going to have sex with him. It wasn't like he started out saying, okay, let's have sex now. He just started kissing me. And, you know, I'm 18, and it was kind of pleasant. I mean, at a certain point, things started to get a little hot, and I said, no, wait a second. This is not going to happen. We had an argument, basically. That's at that point that he said, well, I'd like to hear your reason, but it had better be a good one. And, I mean, this is a young man. There's no one else in the room. He's about six foot two. I'm five six. And I'm trying to defend myself from this onslaught, which is, at this point, mostly verbal. The violence was not physical, if you know what I mean. It was an assault on my person because I had to explain. I had to come up with valid arguments for why I shouldn't sleep with him right then. And then I paused. I paused. I I was taken aback. I didn't have an answer. And so the bottom line was simply, well, no, I just don't want to. I just can't. I can't is what I said. I can't. I can't do that. And um, I never saw him again. And I was really sad because I really liked him. Suddenly women were on the defensive. Instead of a man needing to cajole a woman or show that he's worthy of a risk, the tables were turned and a woman had to justify not having sex. The idea that this was freeing to women and that they all enjoyed this new arrangement just isn't true. There's even more evidence of this today when women are confessing that they had sex with someone just because they didn't feel like arguing the point. At the time, it was just what everyone was doing. And if you didn't do it, you were weird. It was a very stressful time. And and the suffering was real because the young men did not call back. A man would no longer see a woman, his wife, or sadly, if people are having sex outside marriage, whatever woman it is, would no longer see this woman as his beloved companion whom he should care about her equilibrium. It'll just be like, well, 
she's not going to get pregnant because we're using contraception, so she needs to be available to me all the time and just kind of use her. So the objectification of women would increase, he said, in our times if that was what happened. I remember thinking, wow, I thought the male hierarchy, you know, the celibate male hierarchy uh, who doesn't understand women and, you know, is down on women and everything. And then I hear this beautiful phrase that if men will start to treat women without concern for their equilibrium and, and their beloved partner, I was like, okay, that that's uh, <laughs> that sounds pretty pro-woman and feminist to me right there, you know, among many other things in Humanae Vitae itself. We're going to take a break. In part two of our Humanae Vitae episode, we're going to hear from two people who actually became Catholic in part because of the church's teaching on contraception. So while a lot of Catholics think that the church is wrong about contraception, there are others who are looking at the evidence around them and realizing that there's only one church that is upholding this hard but true teaching. The reason that I converted to Catholicism was over the issue of NFP. (laughs) If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor. Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.